outside my office window is one of the most beautiful and important rivers in America, the mighty Hudson River. And today, it is perfectly calm, smooth as glass. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this word from our sponsor. I just said two things about the Hudson that aren't actually true. The first one is calling it a river. It's actually a fjord, a tidal estuary, a body of water that's brackish, half salt water, half fresh. And the coolest part is that the water flows in both directions. Half the day, the tide comes in, and the other half the day, it goes the other direction. And calm? Well, while it might appear calm, the Hudson River is almost always moving, except for those in-between moments when it switches from one direction to the other, the water is moving. And this is a podcast about a different kind of movement, the movement of money. Cash flow is an amorphous concept that really needs to be understood by anybody who buys or sells, who starts something, who borrows money, who saves money, or who interacts with money. There are two things that are worth understanding straight up. The first one is this. Money, thanks to 500 years of capitalism, is everywhere. Everything, every opportunity, it has a value. But it's a giant but. The relationship between money and your worth, your value, your contribution is muddy at best. People who make more money aren't better aren't even better at the thing that they do necessarily than people who don't. People who sell their music aren't necessarily better musicians than the people who don't. And we live in a culture where those two things have been conflated. That somehow, being ranked as one of the 500 richest people in the United States is more than a measure of how much money you made. But that's all it is. So we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. That if you set out to make money and you don't make money, then you didn't do a good job of making money. But if you set out to make a difference, if you set out to change people, whether or not money comes in isn't really the point of what you set out to do. Okay, and what's the second thing? The second thing is that money flows. Money is always moving. Even that money in your mattress it's moving because every day it's worth less than it was worth when you put it there. That if you put money in the right place, it grows. And if you put money in the wrong place, it decreases in value. That the entire nature of our economy is based on something called the velocity of money. How often is it moving? Who is it moving to? Who is paying interest? Who is getting interest? Is the money being put to good use? Because what capitalism has done, what economics has measured, is the idea of costs, opportunity cost, the side effects of the things that we make, the choices we make and the things we choose not to make, where we put our money, where we don't put our money. 
and what happens to us when we run out of it in a business or a project. So let's start with a simple example that gets to what it means to pay attention to cash flow if you're a business. If a business sells something to Macy's, Macy's will pay them for that object 60 or even 90 days later. But that thing they sold to Macy's, they had to make it. And in order to make it, they might have had to pay the factory where it was made 30 days, 60 days, before the thing was delivered. So if we add it up, what it means is that order you got for $100,000 worth of coats, it might have cost you for two, three, four months before you get that money back. So yes, an accountant will tell you you made a profit, but your cash flow, the cash flow went in the wrong direction. Because even though you'd made the sale, it was months before you got paid cash to cover the cash that you had to lay out to get the things made. Let's look at it in the other direction. If you're Amazon or Walmart, it might be that a product sits on your shelf for five days on average before someone buys it. That's called inventory turn. Five days is very fast. What five days means is that every year, about 72 times, that shelf gets emptied and refilled. Every slot, 72 times. In some retailers, it might be a number as low as four, but at a place like Amazon or Walmart, it might be a really high number. Okay, so it lasts on the shelf for five days before Amazon gets the money, before Walmart gets the money. But Procter & Gamble, the people who put that Tide on the shelf, they don't get paid for 30 days. So here's what's happening. As Walmart was growing, it was busy buying products from people like Procter & Gamble, and they had 30 days to pay them. But they were getting the cash from the customer in five days, which meant that the more they grew, the more cash they had on hand. They were borrowing money for free from their suppliers. So why does this matter? It matters because if you are doing a project and you ever get to zero, you're out of the game. Just like Monopoly, you're out of the game. Unless there's a bank that will give you money to keep you in the game. So if you've got that big order from Macy's, you can walk right down the street in the garment district to a business called The Factor. You can hand the purchase order to The Factor. The Factor knows that Macy's is good for the money, so they'll write you a check and give you a loan to tide you over. They're not charging you 3%, which is what your bank's paying you on your checking if you're really lucky. They're not charging you 10%. They might be charging you 20% interest, which might be all the profit that's on the table. And now you know why it's better to be a bank. Because banks are busy loaning money to companies that have excellent prospects. And they're charging those companies a fortune to reverse the cash flow, to make it so that they have enough cash to build the thing they need to build to sell it to the person who already wants to buy it. 
So the first rule here is positive cash flow is a good idea. That you can organize your work to get paid sooner and to pay slower. Not by ripping people off, but by the way you organize your work. That what bootstrappers do is they find customers who need what they do enough that they pay in advance. Think about the airlines. If you buy that airline ticket five months before you fly, guess who has the money for five months? United Airlines doesn't send you a bill and wait for you to take two months to pay it after they've paid for the peanuts and the gas. You paid them five months ahead of time. Well, it's not an accident that the airlines built that business model. And so when we think about how do we approach the marketplace, we can begin by understanding that some people have a problem that's significant enough that they will pay us in advance to solve it. But that means picking the right people and solving the right problem. The next concept in cash flow is the idea of margins. That if you're used to buying stuff, which most of us have been since we were little kids, it seems ridiculous when you look at what you need to charge somebody for what you make. Because you say to yourself, well, it only cost me two bucks to make this lemonade, so I'll charge two fifty a glass. That sounds fair. Except it didn't just cost you two bucks to make that lemonade. It cost you two bucks to buy the lemons. But when you add in all the other costs and combine that with how long it is between sales of lemonade, unless you charge $8 a glass, you're going to go out of business. That margin is different than I'm a greedy profit maker. That margin says I need to count what it really costs me to be here on the day you need me with the store you need to be here with the support and the insurance and the people and the overhead. And not only that, I need to pay my bills on the days you didn't show up because my landlord charges me rent every single day, not just on the days that I make a sale. And that's why the vast majority of small businesses fail for one of two reasons. Not enough business or not charging enough for what they do. And It takes a real optimist to say, we're going to make it up in volume. Because making it up in volume means you're going to get more customers and sell more to them. It's possible that you will get to that point, that you will become Starbucks or even the OXO scissor maker people. But it's really unlikely. And the alternative instead is to say, I'm not going to have a lot of customers but the customers I have are going to really need what I make. Need it so much they'll pay me in advance and need it so much that they'll pay me a fair price. If you aren't doing those two things, then what you are doing is buying your market share by financing things on your customer's behalf and selling it to them at a loss. That can work if you get to scale, but it is not an effective way to grow your business. The next idea about cash flow is this. Your inventory isn't free. All that stuff you've made in advance, whether it's on the shelves of your warehouse or on your hard drive, 
It costs you something to put it there. And every day it's there, you're paying for it. You might be paying for it because you have a loan from the bank, or it could be you're paying for it because you could have gotten rid of it and gotten cash for it, but instead you're holding on to it. Now, sometimes it doesn't make sense to sell it at a discount to clear it out because that can pollute the market because now you're putting stuff into the market at a discount and it makes it really difficult to sell it for a fair price later. But we can take another lesson from the fashion industry here. Waiting for mini dresses to come back in style seven years from now is expensive indeed. Clear it out. Take the cash and use the cash to invest in the next thing. The Boston Consulting Group famously divided all products and services into one of four categories. They are stars, cash cows, problem children, and dogs. Each one represents the cash flow profitability of the item and the growth. So if you have something that's growing fast and giving you positive cash flow as it goes, that's a star. Good for you. Cash cows aren't growing fast. They're sticking around. They're not going to get better. But the cash flow is really positive. That's like Western Union with its cash transfer and telegram business. It exists. It's not going to go through the roof, but it pays the bills plus every single day. The next corner are the dogs. Low cash flow, low profitability, and they're not growing. You should shut those down. And the final one are the problem children. These are industries, sectors, projects that could take off if you invested enough in them. So what you need to do is figure out where your dogs are and get rid of them. Figure out where your cash cows are and make sure that they are paying the bills so that you can invest in problem children. And then don't blow it with those stars. And if you can get a star, good on you. All a way of saying that either money's managing you or you are managing money. Another riff about debt. It's easier than ever to borrow money. If you're not careful, you're going to get 10 or 20 or 30 credit card solicitations a month. Banks are falling all over themselves to lend you money because that's what a credit card is. It's not unusual for a big bank to have a credit card division that makes a billion dollars a year in profit. It's a really good business. 18, 20, 30% interest rates. That's really hard to discharge. And almost anyone can get the money. So the question is, when should you borrow money? The best answer is this. If it goes up in value, if the money you're going to borrow is going to be spent on something that goes up in value or gives you a significant new opportunity, then it's a worthwhile investment. So maybe an advanced education, definitely a punch press or some other asset for your office, something that creates value in excess of what the debt costs you. And what's not worth going into debt for? Anything that goes down in value. 
anything that papers over the gap between today and tomorrow. So if you can, don't get a car loan. It's really frequent for people on the day their old car loan runs out to go buy a new car and take a new car loan. If they added up the interest that they were paying over the 50 years that they were living that way and compared it to what would happen if they drove a junker one extra year a few times in a row to the point where instead of a car loan, they bought the car when they had the money, they would save a hundred or $200,000 over the course of all that driving. That's a huge gift to make up for driving a junker for four years. So what we have is the opportunity to bring our own discipline to the table and say, there are things I would like to buy, so I will save to buy them, as opposed to creating a cycle with the bank where the bank enables me to have it sooner rather than later, but I am beholden to them for years and years and years to come. Underlying most of this analysis is the idea that your personal cash flow, your organizational cash flow, is largely up to you from the start. If you decide to spend the first few years sleeping on the floor, eating black beans and rice, cutting your overhead to the bone, not borrowing at the beginning, it ends up giving you positive cash flow. That positive cash flow gives you the freedom to invest in things that are going to go up in value, to dig deep, to create projects where you have positive cash flow. And if you can have positive cash flow at the beginning and avoid the temptation of debt when you're not sure what assets to invest in, you will find new opportunities. And then, When the right opportunity comes, it may make perfect sense for you to invest in it and to get debt to invest in it because you're confident that it will pay off many times more than it's going to cost you. But back to the original concept behind this podcast. All of the things I've talked about are strategies around the game of money, that money is always moving that money grows, that money costs, that cash flow matters. But it's a game. It's not personal. And what we need to do as productive artists and professionals who create things is to say, when money is involved, we have to put our game hat on. That this isn't a personal referendum on who I am and what I am worth. It's a game. And I can play it to make more money or I can play it poorly. But as soon as we conflate it with who am I as a human, what do I count for, what am I worth, then we're going to lose that game because the forces that are around us are arrayed to take advantage of someone who's doing it personally, who's checking the balance on some screen as a way to determine their self-worth. We each have the opportunity to create something that matters, to do work that matters for people who care. But we can't do it when we're stressed out of our minds about money. So the tide goes in and the tide goes out. And if we're smart about the tidal estuary that is the flow of cash, we can use cash to our advantage, not have it used against us. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with answers to your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Thanks so much for your great questions about last week's episode about Moore's Law. If you've got a question about this week's episode or anything we've covered in the past, visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Three juicy questions. Let's get right to it. Hi, Seth. Andy here in St. Louis. Uh, One thing I really like about your writing and every time you elucidate a concept is how the reader or listener uh, has to make a leap of their imagination to really try to connect the principles that you outline to a specific application that we might care about. I'm having a little trouble with this one, and I'm wondering if you could help me think about how does this Moore's Law, Google, Yahoo, Um, compounding, how does that apply to an individual creator, uh, blogger, podcaster, whatever? Um, Maybe how would you advise yourself to apply this lesson? Thank you for the follow-up about how we see Moore's Law ratcheting us forward, no matter what we do. So I'll use my example to begin with. I made books for a living. In 1985, was the thing I worked in. Looking at Moore's Law coming down the pike, of course, you realize first the creation of books, typesetting, desktop publishing, will get cheaper and faster and better. And then soon after that, something like the Kindle has to show up. Soon after that, the Kindle starts showing up on a device in every single person's pocket. Basically, if you have a smartphone, you get a Kindle for free. And along the way, the price of the standalone Kindle has to get cheaper and cheaper until it's almost free. And then consider the idea of audiobooks. Audiobooks were a tiny backwater in 1995. You could get the audiobook rights for nothing because it had to be on a cassette. Well, Don Katz invented Audible, but in order to invent Audible, he also had to invent a player that could digitally play audiobooks. I'm pretty sure in the back of his head he knew that one day other devices would support what he needed to have happen. And now again, the audiobook player comes for free in every single person's pocket. Fast forward, now that we've made it easy for people to publish their ideas, the value created through the scarcity of the publishing model starts to degrade. If anyone can write, anyone will write which means that if you want to make an impact with leverage, you can't just say, I have words on a page, want to buy some. And that's why in my role as a teacher, we shifted from here are some words on a piece of paper to here's a community, a digital community. And so the Akimbo workshops are betting on Moore's Law, that video conferencing keeps getting better, that people will want to get closer and closer to each other as they learn, that the scarce thing is a community worth joining. 
Well, you say, okay, fine, that works for intellectual property. But what about, I don't know, plumbing? Well, consider the boroscope. I have a boroscope. It costs $9. A boroscope used to cost $900. It's a little tube that you can shoot down a pipe to see if there's something wrong with it. It hooks right up to my phone via Bluetooth, and there's a light on it. $9. If you're a plumber, all of a sudden, things that were a mystery aren't a mystery anymore. Not only that, but devices in the HVAC world, forced air, air conditioning, heating, they're all going to have computers in them. They're all going to talk to each other. So Nest shows up with a thermostat that changes the way people consume heat. There's almost no job, no profession, no career I can think of that isn't being impacted by the ubiquity of computers. So if you're a surgeon... Well, it's about to become antediluvian for you to actually take a scalpel and actually cut somebody open. You need to be controlling a robot that does that because it can do it more reliably and more effectively than you can. So as we go down the list, what we see is there are still plenty of jobs to do, but those jobs involve managing and coordinating way more than they involve doing things that a computer is now capable of doing. Hi Seth, it's Charlie, an Alt-MBA alumni in Tokyo. Your recent podcast about Moore's Law got me thinking. The thing is that the law only works when we have infinite resources and can constantly be iterating and innovating our way forward. Since our planet has finite resources and the constant iteration uses those resources up so quickly, what can we be doing as consumers and creators to keep innovation going forward while still being mindful of how limited these resources really are? Thank you for your teaching. I think when they write the history of my lifetime, 1960 to the 20s, it will be a chronicle of waste. More waste, more profligate waste by more people than any time in human history. Just astonishing. From strip mining to making creatures extinct just because we can. You're right. It's a mess. Too much consumption. The interesting thing about Moore's Law is that as computers evolve, Kevin Kelly in his great book, What Technology Wants, talks about how computers are a species, technology evolving along with us. As they evolve, in the short run, they consume more power. They make more of a mess. But in the long run, they keep making things more efficient. Walk down a hallway powered by LED lights, which are basically computers. Take a look at how computers can organize supply chains to make them far less wasteful. That knowing what someone needs and wants and making just that is far more efficient than guessing. Or consider something like plant production, irrigation. It turns out that indoors, powered by solar, without pesticides, we can increase the yield on things like watercress and arugula by a factor of 40, 40 times as efficient to grow crops in the long run using this idea that digital technology, paying attention 24 hours a day, bringing the right drop of water to the right plant at the right moment, that ratchet is also moving in the right direction. I'm not a Pollyanna. We have really tough work ahead of us. But it seems to me 
that more information and more coordination can't help but make us more efficient, not less efficient. Hi, Seth. This is Neil Mossy calling from Hampshire in the United Kingdom. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I have a son, and he's 10. And in under a year, he's going to go to high school, big school. And we have a culture in the UK that that is pretty much the time when we give our kids a smartphone. It's under the the pretext that they'll need some way of uh, calling home if they get into trouble to and from school. But I can't help feeling as a dad that I'm effectively giving him the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes. And on the surface, it, it looks like my options are obvious, but I'm really curious, Seth, what do you think my options are at this stage? Am I helping him to effectively do the equivalent of starting smoking? Or am I helping arm him uh, to develop himself, to develop himself in the industrial smartphone complex? Really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks again, Seth. This is such a poignant question, and I really appreciate you asking it. I guess I'd start with this. What is parenting for? That 12-year-old, that 13-year-old in your house, what is your role in helping that person become who they can become? Well, one model, which seems like the easy short-term model, is to help them fit in, to help them go all the way into the center of a gang of other 13-year-olds. There's enormous pressure on 13-year-olds to do this. The question we need to ask is, does fitting in the most lead to the best life, to the happiest long-term outcome? Or is it okay to challenge our kids, encourage our kids, and push our kids to not be the one who's the lowest common denominator, to not be the one who fits in, to learn what it feels like to turn to people and say, no, I don't want to do that. Because without parents, that's really unlikely to happen. So you're probably guessing what my answer is here. We know a lot about the efficacy of smartphones. We also know a lot about their side effects. It seems to me, and your mileage may vary, that a kid who waits two years or three years longer than average to start diving deep into the maelstrom of Instagram and Facebook and the rest of social media, probably comes out ahead on the other side. I don't know. No one knows for sure. But we do need to answer the question, this parenting I'm doing, what is it for? Because if all you want to do is encourage your kid to fit in, that's the easy path. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is 
it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.